Revelation 17, if you're at home, you can read aloud. And, and those here at church with me tonight with their masks on, they can read out loud as well there. But uh, I want to preach a message tonight from Revelation 17. The title of the message this evening is Beauty on the Beast. Not Beauty and the Beast. Every husband and wife are going to look at each other at Beauty and the Beast, but we're not talking about that. We're looking at Beauty on the Beast, and we'll see why tonight from Revelation 17. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials. Remember, all of chapter 16 was dealing with the seven bold trumpets, the seven bold judgments. And these vials also mean bowls. They're, they're kind of crescent-shaped bowls that poured out the judgment of God on the earth. He talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither. I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. <clears throat> I'll explain all that tonight. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads, and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple, in scarlet color, and decked with gold, and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee of the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carried her which, had seven, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were, written in the book of, were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not, Yet yeah, is. Father, tonight, it's such a joy ministering to your people today. It's a blessing that our adult growth groups just finished, a number of them just finished classes. Thank you for those who attended. You edified us and built us up in those classes. This week, I'm thankful for the faithfulness of our teachers, our sponsors our workers. Thank you for those who gave detail to the sanitization of our church yesterday and today. Those who came and took care of the grounds. A lot of things were done this week. But Lord, we realize all of that was so that the ministry of the Word could be conducted today. And as we enter this service tonight, help our little faith. The Bible says of Abraham that he was strong in faith, not doubting the promises. Father, we need to be men and women who are strong in faith. We live in a time that emphasizes pragmatism. And God, we need to be careful that we don't let pragmatism replace faith. Great faith we need to have. We're looking at Revelation 10 tonight. You gave us that chapter of Scripture. You gave clear understanding about it. But as many read it, they scratch their head and wonder, what does it all mean? And while we want to give a correct interpretation, we also recognize we don't want our hearts to, be, to gravitate towards being academic so much that we lose sight of the spiritual. 
the emphasis of, Lord, living for Christ, being children of the day, not children of the night. Move us tonight, energize us, strengthen us, help us, Lord, to be strong in the faith now. We pray for those watching who may not be saved, that through tonight's service they'd come to know Christ as their Savior. Use us in a wonderful way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're at the three-and-a-half-year mark of the Great Tribulation. The Sedgeway into chapter 17 is found in chapter 16, verse 19. We've seen a lot of symbols. We're looking at the wrath of God. There's the seven seal judgments. We've seen the 144,000 witnesses. The many people get saved through their ministry. We've seen seven trumpet judgments. We've seen a glimpse of Israel and uh, Israel hiding and Israel being persecuted. We've seen an entire chapter given to the beast and his false prophet and how that all unfolds in this passage of Scripture. Last week we we saw the seven bold judgments. And tonight in Revelation 17, we see many uh, mystery characters, if I can say that. We see a woman again, we saw a woman mentioned in Revelation 12, and a woman again here in Revelation 17. This woman's mentioned six times. Uh, We see this woman sitting on what's described as many waters. We see this woman sitting upon a scarlet-colored beast. What is that? Uh, The beast had seven heads and ten horns. We saw that before. We're going to look at that a little bit more deeply tonight. We see Babylon mentioned. Why is Babylon mentioned? Why is Babylon mentioned as mystery Babylon? The Bible describes that tonight. We're going to examine who and what this woman is and Babylon means. We're towards the close of the Great Tribulation. We're moving very quickly through the three and a half year period of time. We're moving towards what is known as Armageddon. We're examining the events leading to the end of the world. It's going to go by very quickly now because we're in chapter 17. Then we're in 18, then we're in 19, and the second coming of Christ. Everything tonight centers around this woman that's described in verse 1. Notice, first of all, we see the, this, the morals of this woman. We see the morals of this woman. She's described as being very shady. The word used in verse 1 is a very strongly derogatory word. It speaks of immoral character. Notice in verses 1, 2, five, 4, 5, 15, and 16, description is given of the immoral character of this woman. I'll talk about that tonight. Her name is specifically Babylon. Babylon the Great. Babylon is the name of a literal city. But Babylon here is the name of his system. You want to write that down. Babylon here describes a system. This woman describes a system. Now, when we see this woman mentioned, I want to just say this ahead of time. Symbolically, the woman here, as we've seen other times in Scripture, symbolically the woman is a representation of false religion. That's what we're looking at tonight. Mystery Babylon in chapter 17 is about false religion. It's about one world religion, as we'll see this evening. Now, there are two Babylons we're going to find mentioned here in Revelation. Notice going back to chapter 16, verse 19, is setting the way for chapter 17. It says, And the great city was divided into three parts. And that was talking about Jerusalem. The great city was divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. The wrath of God is going to be poured out upon organized, one-world, false religion. Now, we kind of just don't think much about it, but it has important bearing here in the Scripture. In chapter 17, we see two things about Mystery Babylon. Mystery Babylon is the religious, the one world, one world religion and the one world government. So it refers to the belief system and the political system in existence during the Great Tribulation period. Chapter 18 
Babylon is presented as the financial and economic system of the world. So the fall of Babylon is twofold. In chapter 17 is the fall of the one world religion and the one world political system. In chapter 18, Babylon is presented as the financial and economic system. So we see the morals of this woman. Notice as we pull it all together. She's described as a great prostitute. She's described as encompassing all of the nations of the world, all the peoples of the world. All the belief systems are going to be amalgamated under this, 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 this system that we find in Revelation 17. And then in chapter 18, as I mentioned, we'll see this next week, all the economic system of the world, it falls under that. So we see, number one, the morals of this woman. Quickly, number two, I want you to see this woman is a mother. She is a mother. I alluded to this in a previous message. But Mystery Babylon finds its roots all the way back in Genesis chapter 10 with Nimrod, his wife, Semiramis, and their son. Notice in verse 5, and upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother harlots. Genesis 10 and 11, we have the unfolding of Nimrod, the founding of Babylon, the Tower of Babel, every false belief system, every political agenda, movement, which in a form is a religion, has its roots in Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. Babylon, if you would, is the mother of every false belief system. It says here in verse 1 that she sat upon many waters. Verse 15 describes those waters. Look at it. He saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore or prostitute sitteth, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Babylon, what represents here, now as we get to chapter 17, one world religion, if you can imagine that for a moment. A one world religion. That means there will be a unifying during the tribulation period, and we're moving towards that right now. A unifying of every false religious belief. Think with me for a minute. False Christianity right now is represented by the World Council of Churches. That is a hodgepodge of apostate Baptists, apostate Protestants, Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, Catholicism thrown into that, Mormonism, the Jehovah Witnesses, Hinduism, Islam, and New Age. It's kind of interesting. I wish I had time to talk about the New Age movement for a minute. I taught a series on that many, many years ago. But New Age is a term that incorporates parapsychology, ecology, political activism, um, the Mother Earth, Mother Earth Movement, Human potential, which is promoted by people like Tony Robbins. Astrology, and it's amazing, the number of followers in astrology. Reincarnation, and even witchcraft, if you can imagine that. All of these systems are united around social reform, feeding the hungry, world peace, some kind of a social agenda. And as we read, starting with Revelation 13 and getting to chapter 17, we find all of them finding comfort and uh, identity with the worship of the beast, his image, and his mark. Everyone who is part of this one world religion have no problem getting the mark of the beast on their forehead or in their right hand. They're worshiping the beast. They have no problem with that. In fact, I think everything that we see today which we call pluralism, where pluralism advocates and says that all roads lead to heaven. They don't all, all roads don't lead to heaven. There's only one way to heaven, that's through Jesus Christ. But they're all comfortable with that. 
They are emphasizing over the last several years, and we're seeing strength towards that, this emphasis on tolerance and following political agenda. And we find that this incorporation of all this is that, that they are united as a one-world religion. All beliefs are tolerated. They don't have a core belief. Their core belief basically is that they're anti-Christian, anti-God, anti-Bible. No truly born-again saved person is going to be alive at that time is going to follow this. There will be saved people during that time, but they're not going to follow this kind of stuff there. And it's called, she's called the mother of harlots because she has many children. They're prostituting, bringing all these religious belief systems together there. But there's something else we see. During that time, notice if you would, verse 3, John describes the angel that, that carried one of the seven bowls, bowl judgments. He carried John, this is one of several times, he carried John away in the spirit. And he took him to a wilderness setting. Now, God wants to see something there. This wilderness setting where he's going to see this woman sitting upon the beast. The wilderness setting reminds us false religion is barren. It's empty. It leaves you dry. It leaves you thirsty. It does nothing for your soul. It may tickle your mind. It may fulfill a social reform idea, but it does nothing for your soul. And in this wilderness setting, he sees this woman sitting upon a scarlet-colored beast. Scarlet is the picture of sin. Though your sins be as scarlet, the Bible says. The beast is the Antichrist. As we get into chapter, three, chapter 17, verse 3, for the first three and a half year period of time of, this, of, this, of the tribulation period, the beast is using... He's in cohorts with this one world religion to fulfill his agenda. And the one world religion is working cohorts with the beast to advance its cause. And the Bible says that the beast there and this woman are, 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 are coming together. Now as we read this, here's what's going on here in chapter 17. We've got a one world government. We've got a one world religion. The two are coming together. That's what's happening here. One real religion, one real government are all the same. They're yoked up together. In the beginning, organized religion is sitting and leading the government. That's kind of interesting. It's kind of like going back to the days of the Church of England. It's kind of like some countries today that their, their state religion is one religion, and to believe in anything other than that, they have anti-conversion laws in there. And by the way, you just pray for our country. The time is coming. They're going to probably pass an anti-conversion law in this country as well. Anti-converting from people into Christianity. And we notice here the description of this one world religion. It's described as being perverted and unrestrained. He says... Then in verse 4, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color. I mean, they tolerate sin. They tolerate things that the Bible calls sin. You know what I'm talking about there. And decked with gold and precious stones. She's very wealthy. This, this one world religious system is going to be extremely wealthy. And it's going to flaunt its sin. It's tolerant of things that God calls out sin. And it says, having a golden cup in her hand, full of the abomination, filthiness of her fornication. It's unrestrained. And it's perverted. And it wears very proudly on his forehead in verse 5 what it is. Prostitutes back in those days wore a card. They advertised. We read about that in Proverbs chapter 7. They advertised what they were doing. And it wears a card. And it's saying here, she's wearing a card on her head that identified her, who she was and what she was all about. She's Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots, okay? So now we see in chapter, chapter 17, verse 3, we see this. She's a mother of all false religion. She's the mother of organized religion. She's the mother of all of these different belief systems. They'll all be, if you can imagine, they're all going to be amalgamated together during the tribulation period. And then with that, she at the, in the beginning will be sitting on top of the one world government. There will be 
be the ploy and the means by which we're pulling people together. And we understand that from chapter 13. Because the beast is leading, is having, through the false prophet, is going to do all these miracles and get everyone to worship the beast and so forth and so forth. And we read about that even back in Daniel chapter 3. In Daniel chapter 3, that the religion of that world at that time was getting everyone to bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar. Let me say a few things before I move on. We use a term that, among those of us who are students of Scripture and are preachers, in describing religious belief systems that come together, we call that ecumenicalism. We sometimes refer to it as compromise. Ecumenicalism disregards doctrine. It doesn't take into account that the authority for the believer is the Bible. And I want to tell you tonight, they're joining together religious belief systems, ecumenicalism is unbiblical. It's not scriptural. We're not for it. I want to tell you bluntly, in a day and age when there's more compromise and more drift and a falling away, we're against it. We're not going to join hands with me. I mean, I, I get a little uncomfortable when I get these invitations to join these clergy events, things like that, because I know that with, the moment you tell me the names of who's on there, you know that the Bible is not the emphasis and Jesus Christ is not Lord. You say, what's wrong with that? I'll tell you what's wrong with it. They do not believe that in the deity of Jesus Christ, that he's God and that he's man. They do not accept his sinless person. They do not accept the virgin birth. They do not believe that the Bible in its entirety is all the word of God. Some of them believe that the Bible becomes the word of God when you read it. No, it does not. It is always the Word of God. It is God's pure, undefiled Word. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my Word shall never pass away. They do not accept that Jesus' death on the cross was substitutionary and sacrificial for every sinner. They do not accept that. We believe in the death of Christ pays the price for the sins of every one of, of, every one of us. He's the, our, he's the, the Bible says he's the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but the sins of all the world. They do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I mean, when you take all the cardinal doctrine scripture, these religious belief systems say this, throughout the doctrine, we don't hold the doctrine, we let's not make doctrine the issue, doctrine is divisive. Of course doctrine is divisive, because doctrine is the truth of God's word. Ecumenicalism right now, if you study the pathway of the world council churches and the natural council churches and even what the United Nations advocated and all these different things, they're leading towards a path of Babylon, the mother of harlots. So there's the issue with ecumenicalism. Second, I want to say this. There's the issue of consolidation of, the, of religious beliefs in the state. Now, one of our Baptist tenets, if you've taken discipleship, you understand we believe as Baptists, we hold to the separation of church and state. We're adamant about that. The state should not control the church. And the church has no business messing with the state. The church needs to influence the state towards righteousness. Righteousness exalted the nation. But when the church comes in, as has happened in the past, is happening now, and religious beliefs become the core of what, they, of what their direct is, then what you find, you find are forced conversions. And what are the marks of false religion, you'll see this in a moment, are forced conversions. They coerce conversions. Thank God for our founding forefathers of America. Some right now are, are throwing all that away. But our founding forefathers recognized coming out of England the unscripturalness and the ruthlessness and the wrongness of the state and religion being one. And so even our U.S. Constitution holds the separation between church and state. So that all being said, ecumenicalism and the consolidation of religion and state, the Bible warns us about a departure. Listen to this. 2 Thessalonians 2.3. Let no man deceive you by any means. What does that mean? Listen, every one of us, need, we need to be cognizant of the drift that's going on. I've heard some of my, my, my preacher friends say, you need a prophetic sense. I think all of us need a prophetic sense, not just a few of us. 
I think all of us need to have a sense of seeing the drift and realize there are dangers with the drift. I'm thankful that growing up as a young man, that was infused into me. It was embedded into me. It was ingrained into me. Watch out for the drift. Watch out for that. You know, we've got it. We've got it. The Bible says we're to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. That's why 2 Peter 2 and the book of Jude are essential in our studies and are essential for us understanding where the drift is happening, how apostasy occurs. And the Bible says this. Now, the now let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. The word falling away is where we get our word apostasy from. We're not going to be yoked up together with unbelievers. We can't. You start doing that, you start changing your belief system. That's why they went from baptism by immersion, they went to baptism by sprinkling. And from baptism by sprinkling, they went to pedo-baptism. And then they changed from that, and they said that anybody could partake of the Lord's table, and they changed the Lord's table around. They, reached, they rewrote that doctrine. Then they went to the doctrine of, 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 of woman worship, Mariolatry, and, and the Queen of Heaven, and all that kind of stuff there. Listen, they gravitate back towards paganism there. 1 Timothy 4, the Bible says this, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly. In other words, the Spirit tells us openly. Then in the latter times, and I believe we're in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, Listen to this, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Speaking lies and hypocrisy. Have their conscience seared with a hot iron. Forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats, which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Paul was referring to, there in verse 3, he was referring to back when he was at Corinth, how some of those people that were, the, 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 the mindset of those days, there was a form of asceticism that came into the church, and men were married, but they weren't having relations with their wife, and they were forbidding to eat meat and all this kind of stuff. And then that, that those pagan practices gravitated itself into Christian belief system. They started amalgamating that into there, and it became a mess. And then you get to the 3rd and 4th century, and a whole new... A whole new version of Christianity comes out, which is not Christianity. And 2 Timothy 3 says, This know that also in the last days perilous times shall come. We are in those perilous times. He said in verse 5, Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. I want to say to every young person listening to the message tonight, and every parent at home, what pastors preach to you is not pastors' religion. This is the Bible religion. This is Bible doctrine. Young people should be concerned about the drift. You're a young man. You're 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 25 years old. You should be concerned about the drift that's happening in our world, the drift that's happening in our Baptist movement, the drift that's happening in fundamentalism right now. You should be concerned about that. We need to cry out loud and blow forth the trumpet. Mystery Babylon, the mother of all harlots, she's burying more children like that. So we see her morals. She's just a mother. Notice number three, she's a murderer. Verse six. And I saw the woman drunken. Can you imagine that description? Inebriated, intoxicated, and drunken with the blood of the saints. And with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. You know, false religion during the tribulation period is going to take delight and enjoyment and celebration and the death of those who preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me say a few things about that. This one world religion one world belief system combined with the one world government will be the way that as we think about this woman, the system sitting upon the beast, every nation of the world, every language of the world, you can imagine this, will be influenced to believe this lie. Now, look at, consider with me for a moment the marks of false religion. False religion is conniving. The Bible says it's seductive. It will seduce you. The Antichrist, John said this in 1 John, the Antichrist will seduce you. 
you'll fall for the lie. It's conniving. False religion is controlling. False religion controls through a mark on the forehead, a mark on the right hand. It's controlling. It coerces. Believe or else. You're a heathen if you don't believe. That's why those brethren who make it through that, persevere through the remaining three and a half years period of time, the pressure on them is intense. They will not have the mark of the beast. They know what's going to happen. They're going to watch people tormented who have got the mark of the beast, but they're going to flee and God's going to get them through all that. But the worst part of this is we get to verse 6 here. It's coercive, it's controlling, it's, condi- it's conniving, but it's also condemning. You don't believe what we believe? You don't accept what we, believe, we, we accept? You won't, go, you won't toe the line with us? We're going to kill you. We're going to shoot you. We're going to behead you. There'll be much beheading. And the Bible describes the one world government, the one world religion, as being drunken with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus Christ. She's a murderer. Organized religion, one world religion is no friend to salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We resemble the persecution of the Baptists throughout all ages. It's probably a good time for us to read the trail of blood again. It's a good time for us to read Fox's Book of Martyrs again, remind ourselves of the history of our Baptist brethren, the persecutions they endured. So we see her morals. We see she's a mother. We see she's a murderer. Would you notice in chapter 17, her mate? She sits on a scarlet-colored beast. The beast has seven heads and ten horns. We're going to describe that. Number one, the beast is the Antichrist. We know that. It's the Antichrist. Now notice the description that the Bible gives us in verse 8 about the Antichrist. Verse 8 about him. It says this, the beast that thou sawest was and is not. Now what does that mean? Okay, we're going to describe that to you. And shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Then notice this description. When they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. Now what that's doing there is taking Revelation 13 is help us understand the prominence the beast, this Antichrist, has in the government situation time. He's described as the one who, notice again verse 8, who was, is not, yet is. Now you want to write this down. This is in reference, number one, to his appearance on the scene. If Jesus comes tonight for us, whoever the Antichrist is, he's alive right now. And he's in a very strategic position because as soon as believers are raptured off the earth, he's going to move very quickly. He'll be able to move all the people of the world unlike any other leader ever has done. It speaks of his appearance. It says he was and is not. What does that mean? That speaks about his assassination. He was killed. He's assassinated. The Bible says he's killed by the sword there in Revelation 13. Not sure how that happens. What happens there? Someone realize how evil it is, they try to take him out. His appearance, his assassination, and then notice it speaks about his awakening. He has a mock, if you would, if I can call this here, a mock resurrection. He has a fake resurrection to kind of, uh, kind of if you would, to make himself look like the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's really raised, he really was raised back up by Satan. And the Bible describes it this way. Notice in verse 8, he, he ascends out of the bottomless pit. Speaking about the beast, the Antichrist, whatever his name is. Organized religion is using him and he's using it. Secondly, notice the seven heads. You probably have wondered every time you've read this what the seven heads refer to. Well, the Bible gives us a description about that later on, verse 9. And here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Everyone in that day knew that the seven mountains referred to the city of Rome. It was called the city that sits on seven mountains. In all this, 
Rome figures very prominently, maybe, maybe even as the, the place where the beast is going to be sitting on his throne. The Bible says his empire will go into perdition. He's hell's agent, being used to combine religion and government together to advance his cause. Notice in verses 10 and 11, after we're told who the seven, the seven heads are, which, which is Rome, he gives us the description. He says, and there are seven kings. Five are fallen. One is. The other is not yet to come. Now, what is he talking about there? On one end, he's talking about future events. And now he's bringing us back in verse 10, back to contemporary events, back to John's day. Well, when John was writing this, this is around 96, 97 A.D., between 95 and 97 A.D. Five Roman emperors had already come and gone when John had written this. Caesar Augustus, Claudius Augustus, Caligula, Tiberius, and Nero. That's what he's referring to there. Five kings are fallen. And one is, who's the one is? That was the Roman emperor during the time when John wrote this. The Roman emperor when John wrote this was speaking of Domitian. But who is the one that has not yet come? Well, we, we, now we see there's seven kings. Watch this. We can account for six of them. Five Roman emperors that, that had already come and gone. The sixth one, which was during John's time of writing, but a seventh, which is to come. Who is that seventh? That's the beast. That's the Antichrist. He hasn't come yet. That's a future event. It's kind of like, like Daniel chapter 9. It, it kind of breaks off things, and we see all this, these events that have occurred, and then we get to the, the final week, the 70th week, Daniel's 70th week, which has not yet come. Well, the, the beast is going to come. But notice the description it gives to the beast. Now, we say, wait a minute. Does that mean he's the seventh king? Yes, he's the seventh king, but it talks about an eighth king. There are seven kings, five are fallen. We talked about them. There are five Roman emperors that already have come and gone. One is, that was the one during John's writing. The other has not yet come. He still has not come. And when he cometh, the Bible says he must continue a short space. And the beast that was, and he is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. Wait a minute, what's he talking about there? Well, he's already explained that. The Antichrist, the beast, is the king that's not yet come, who was and is not, the Bible says, who was and is not, and uh, he's the eighth, and, uh, and, 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 he, and he, you know, it talks about, what's it talking about there? Well, it's talking about the fact he's the seventh one, but he dies, and then he awakens. He's assassinated, and then he awakens. He's brought back, okay? He's brought back to life there, if, you, if we can say that there. So that's what he's talking about there. So he's representing this beast. He's talking about the heinousness and the wickedness and the unusualness of this leader here. Now, let me say this. Now we go there, and we go to verse 12. Notice verse 12. He explains to us who these kings are. What we want to be concerned with don't worry about the, fight, the, last, the first six kings. They're gone. They came and were on the scene. They're gone, the first six kings. The seventh one, who's also called the eighth one, is the Antichrist. Now with him, the Bible describes ten horns. These ten horns, verse 12 tells us, are ten kings. Now for years, for years, Bible students because of our understanding of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire consisted of ten major countries. However, however, well, let me say this, the ten, those ten kings, ten countries, which would include Great Britain and Spain and France and those countries and Italy, many have believed that when the European Union was formed, that the European Union fits very aptly into this passage of Scripture. It could. I'm not going to discount that. The European Union has grown, and then it's gone backwards. If it is the European Union, by this time it will consist of ten nations. However, however, 
little bit of study, and I'm not an expert on this, and don't take this as gospel truth, because even Scripture doesn't say this, but I think I'm right. The Roman Empire, in its reign, was incredibly extensive. It covered northern Africa, which is Islamic. It covered all the Middle East, which includes Turkey. It covered all of Europe, and then going northward, the Stand Nations, which are all Islamic. If you look at every country today, and there's a large listing of them, that was part of that old Roman Empire, the ten countries could represent, it could represent more than just the European Union. I'm of the belief that if you just restrict it to the European Union, that leaves the stand nations out, that possibly leaves Turkey out, that leaves portions of the Middle East out, if not all of it, and North Africa out. The heaviest concentration of religious belief today is Islam, with over a billion followers. Hinduism is not very far behind. Whoever they are, notice what it says in verse 12. The ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet. So we're going through the tribulation. The eminence of these powers are there, but they have no kingdoms. The beast, the Antichrist, is going to give them power as kings, as co-regents, if I can say that. He's going to give them power for one hour with them. Now, the one hour means for a limited period of time. Why? He's already in control. He has a one-world government, does he not? He has a one-world religion, does he not? He's in control. Why does he want to do that? Well, that leads to our final point. We see this woman, watch this, this woman, her morals, she's a mother, she's a murderer, her mate, but we see her massacre. The Antichrist is the agent, Satan's agent. He's the son of perdition. Perdition is talking about the final end of this man. He's going to be in the lake of fire. He's, going to, he's not even going to hell. He's going straight into the lake of fire at the end. He's going to get tired of the woman or religion sitting on him. He wants her wealth. He's not content with what power he has. He's worked his way in getting all of the world and all these religious systems to get politically to worship him. They bow down to his image. Notice what the Bible says. These ten kings will join him. The Bible says in verse 13, they will have one mind to give their power and strength to the beast. Whoever they are, this is why I don't believe it's just the European Union. They are so influential that with his approval and his blessing, they're going to move masses of people to join him. And verse 14 tells us why. To move together into the valley of Megiddo for the final battle with our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're going to save that for chapter 19. They're going to make war with Jesus. Let me just tell you this. Never fight with God. Amen? Never fight with God. Let God fight for you, but don't fight with God. And he's going to overcome them. We'll talk about that later. And verse 15 describes now again, it waits until verse 15, describes these waters that the great horse sits on. And the waters represent all the people, nations, and languages of the world. So through religion, there's one world religion, there's one world government, everybody's amalgamated. It's not, there's no disconnection. There's no disjointment. Everything's going to be amalgamated. Notice verse 16. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Notice this, why? 
For God has put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. Now notice verse 16. The beast, he wants it all. I mean, he's the summation of covetousness. He wants the wealth. He wants to conquer. And so he gets these ten men together, and all of organized religion will be turned upon, and the words he describes it is basically he's going to do away with this woman or the one-world religious system and the one-world political system. She'll be massacred. He'll strip her. He'll shame her. He'll cannibalize her and destroy her. Why? Because God put that in her hearts. Why? Because you know what? Listen to me. God hates false religion. Just mark it down. God hates false religion. If you're not worshiping God, then you don't love God. And false religion, I said this earlier, is symbolized through the woman. We find our first introduction to that in Revelation 2. We find a church that had a Jezebel in that. Remember that? Jezebel represents false doctrine. Notice the parallel. There comes a time when people will get tired of false religion. And they're going to fall, they're going to throw false religion out the window. They're going to turn on it and feed it to the dogs. Just as Jezebel, two men that followed her got got wary of her. They listened to Elijah, they threw her out, or to Jehu, and they threw her out the window. And the dogs came and ate her. The same thing is going to happen to false religion. What a picture of that. Was a fore- what happened to Jezebel is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to false religion. You see, God's going to deal with false belief system. There is no Pluralism is not tolerated by God. Atheism is not tolerated by God. All of these false religious systems are not tolerated by God. God is saying here, there's going to come a time, all of it's going to be cannibalized. It'll be made desolate, born naked, and shall be eaten and burnt with fire. Because God put them in their hearts to destroy the very system that they believed in. They won't believe in it. The beast is stir-crazy. He's a madman for all the wealth, all the power, and all the control. Remember what I said about false religion? It's conniving. It's controlling. It's coercing. And it's condemning. It forces conversions. It forces beliefs. We persuade men, but we cannot coerce men to believe. We cannot do that. It has to be of their own free will. So that all being said tonight, let me give you some closing thoughts. Because honestly, talking about, talking about this one and this beast is pretty, pretty, pretty discouraging. Amen. Let me give some closing thoughts and encouraging. Number one, would you write this down? There's the true church and there's the false church. There's only two kinds of churches. Either it's true or it's false. The true church is scriptural. It holds the Baptist doctrine. Baptist doctrine is apostolic doctrine. That's Jesus' doctrine. Amen. The true church is scriptural, so winning, separated, and loves the Savior. Amen. The true church is not ecumenical. It doesn't kumbaya with all, every other belief system. Amen? There's a true church and there's a false church. We see here in chapter 17, God deals with the false church. You know, I tell people this. They, sometimes church planners come out and there's a young man praying about he's trying to raise support to come out here to the Bay Area to start a church. And I, I'll pray God's best for him if God leads him out here to, after this COVID-19 thing. And people have this idea we don't have enough churches here in the Bay Area, but Talk to the pastoral staff, they'll tell you this, they'll agree with me. Our problem is that we don't have enough churches. We have too many churches. We have too many of the wrong churches. We don't have enough of the right churches. And there's a church confusion. That's why even sometimes I, 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 I cringe a little bit when in our invitation process, come check our church out. Yeah, I want us to be distinguished as a church. I want us to be distinguished because of our doctrine. We're not distinguished because, of our, because we're trying to look like the world. We're distinguished because we're not like the world. We're not of the world, Okay. So we must understand tonight, in a day when there's confusion, 
when a day when the, the lines are blurred, we must distinctly identify ourselves as the church of Jesus Christ. And not the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're the church of Jesus Christ that is scriptural and biblical in nature. Secondly, notice verse 14. Apostasy hates Jesus Christ. It is always trying to find a way to fight with Jesus. Look at verse 14. These shall make war with the Lamb, but praise God, the Lamb shall overcome them. You know, God put that in verse 14 here to remind us God wins at the end. It looks really bad for seven years, but when you get to the end, Jesus wins. Jesus conquers. Jesus is victorious. Hey, praise God tonight. You can, you can just declare tonight you're on the winning side. Amen. Our God wins. Midst of the bloodshed, destruction, and carnage, don't forget, Jesus wins. Jesus has a win-loss record. There are no losses. He wins. But I like the last part here. There's a true church. Jesus wins. The last thing I want to give you tonight, Revelation 17 is about a woman that is called filthy and abominable. I want to declare to you tonight there's another woman. This woman is presented in 2 Corinthians 11:2 as a chaste virgin. Revelation 19:8, she's clothed in fine linen, clean and white. Her, her husband, her bridegroom, is preparing her as a bride who's glorious, without spot or wrinkle. There's another woman. That woman is the bride of Jesus Christ. Praise God, his local New Testament church. Amen. Jesus died for the church and purchased it with his own blood. We are God's church. We are God's people. We're blood-bought people. We're Bible people. We're soul-winning people. We're zealous people. We're a steadfast bride. And thank God tonight, Brother Vaughn chose the opening choir song. We are the church, the chosen bride of Christ. We have the imprint of his cross upon our lives. The highest price was paid when the Lamb of God was made. The perfect and most holy sacrifice. We have one purpose, one mission, one reason to remain. To raise the cross of Jesus and magnify his name. We preach Christ. We preach Christ who was crucified and risen from the grave. We preach Christ, the only one who has the strength to save. The, mes the, the, the message we proclaim is the power of his name. We preach Christ. Yes, there's this woman in Revelation 17, but there's another woman. She's a woman that is glorious and holy and set apart. That's the local New Testament church. I want to tell you, church, while we're in a COVID-19 world, love his church. Come to church, be in the service, rejoice in the preaching, rejoice in the assembling together of God's people. When we get mobilized and go out and start sowing again, join soul winning, put your mask on, social distance, but let's go soul winning. Let's reach the multitude. We're going to have a missions conference. We're still going to advance the cause of world mission. We preach Christ. Thank God there's another woman. She's a chaste virgin. She's Jesus' bride. We're, part, we're, we're that bride. Thank God for that tonight. There's a beauty on the beast. But there's a beauty in Revelation 19 where she's going to be brought to her bridegroom and there's a marriage supper of the Lamb. You help me tonight. Let's give the best representation of the church through our testimony, through our mouths, through our soul winning, through our attendance, and through our lives.